When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And about the second or third year of visit, Scott, here's what he said that Sean Payton told him. He said, spacing is a second read to everything. So at that moment, what it became to me was not really the route concept itself, but a philosophy about the passing game. So what does that mean? Well, it means that whether I use a sit over the ball and a spot route and swing or not, it means that from that moment on, we have leaned very, very heavily into routes that have a second layer of rhythm on the back side. We're back for another week of the Passing Lab, and I'm really excited about this week's guest. Our host, Josh Herring, has been doing an excellent job, both in securing the guests for us and then in the conversations as well. So, Josh, thank you again for joining us and doing this every single week, and tell us a little bit about our guest today. Yeah, so today's guest is Andrew Coverdale, who is a guest that, for me, I, I would have paid money to uh, <laughs> to get to talk to. Really uh, formative influence on my career and just kind of the way I thought about the game. And just ultra, ultra successful, uh, not just on the field, but in the influence he's had on other coaches. So really, really excited to talk to him. Anytime you talk to Andrew, you're going to get, um, it's like a fire hose of great ideas getting sprayed at you. So really excited. Yeah, going back to the beginnings, of my career being a 20-something coach. I remember going to the Cincinnati Glazier specifically to see one guy to sit in front of his six sessions front row and fill up notepad after notepad. And I had already had all of his, you know, old coach's choice books and DVDs and, you know, read through all those. So it was great to meet him there. And then years later, I'm giving a clinic at Ball State University and there he is in the front row and taking notes and then you know we clinic together individually he came out to bw one time in clinic with me so just an incredible thinker on the game i love how he organizes ideas a great teacher of the game as well and i just you know flat out copied how he did things with powerpoint in the early days he was really using that to <laughs> maximum advantage to teach so yeah here we go our passing lab with andrew coverdale this is another great one here on the passing lab presented by Coaching Coordinator. What you see on tape is a direct reflection of what you teach and how you teach. Video is important, but if you don't teach well, you're not going to like what you see on your video. First Down Playbook has been helping coaches teach better for 13 years. It allows you to present installs, playbooks, and practice cards in half the time with NFL quality. Coaching tools like video pairing, a player app, practice schedules, and wristband sheets have made First Down Playbook a program management system with everything in one place. If you're in a position of leadership with your football program, receive a free one-week look at First Down Playbook. Call them at 512-814-6158 or visit them on their website or social media. Mention Coach and Coordinator Podcast or use the coupon code COACH24 
to receive a $100 discount off the normal $700 First Down Playbook team membership price. Links and the phone number are in the show notes. As coaches, we know that some of the biggest hurdles to our team's success can come from off the field. Your team needs support to tackle the endless list of expenses, uniforms, training equipment, travel, and more. But raising that money can feel like a full-time job. Thankfully, there's Vertical Raise. Vertical Raise is the premier online fundraising platform using innovative technology to create the easiest and most efficient system available. Raise more money in less time with a local fundraising coach who works with your team every step of the way to customize the ideal fundraiser. With options for online donations, digital discount cards, premium product sales, and even spirit shops, Vertical Raise has top-of-the-line solutions for every fundraising style. To find out more, visit verticalraise.com and we'll get you connected with an exclusive offer on your first fundraiser. All right. I want to welcome everybody to the Passing Lab. We've got a really, really exciting episode tonight that I'm looking forward to. We've got a, a big name. He's a humble guy, and I'm sure he, he, would, he would downplay that, but it's a big name. We're super excited to have him on the show. We've got Andrew Coverdale. Coach Coverdale has had a huge impact on my career. Uh, I once listened to him. I think, Coach, I think it was 2009-2010 at a Nashville Glacier. I think I listened to you for eight sessions. It was awesome. That's It's a lot to listen to anybody for eight sessions on anything. Yeah. They, they yeah. better be pretty good. And uh, I got a ton out of it. It was awesome. But Coach Coverdale is offensive coordinator and quarterback coach at St. X in Cincinnati. Well known from his time in Kentucky at, at Trinity. Has uh, his hands full of championship rings. I think he's working on his toes now at this point. And a lot of you may know him not only through clinic speaking, but uh, along with Dan Robinson was co-author of some groundbreaking books on passing the football that impacted a lot of guys. I think with the detail that went into those books and just how technical they were. And I think it inspired a lot of young coaches like myself with what they could do. And lastly, uh, Coach Coverdale is the undisputed champion of PowerPoint. If you've ever been to one of his clinics or seen any of his stuff. So, Coach, we're super, super excited to have you on. we got some great things to talk about, and thanks for being here. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Josh. Thank you for uh, thank you for making time to do this. I'm sure I'll get as much out of it as uh, you will. Something that popped to mind that really was kind of unscripted that I think might be helpful to say at the ripe old age of 52, that bunch book – I didn't really know what I was doing. I was 24 years old and I had a great mentor in Dan and we had tape that most people didn't have of, of at that time, the Washington Redskins who were way ahead out in front of all of it. So we were just kind of doing the best we could. It started as a research project for us. The point I want to make is that the only reason we even tried to market it or sell it is because of a big professional disappointment on my end related to salary and some other things at the place that I was coaching for Dan where some things went sideways. My point being that the early part of my career, because I had zero playing experience really beyond eighth grade, I couldn't get, I couldn't get people to hire me for nothing basically. And the bunch book was a byproduct of real significant professional disappointment uh, on a number of levels. That's not important to get into right now, but the, the point is that that, book, me not knowing my butt from first base really has just created all kinds of opportunities from the disappointment. I guess what I'm really trying to do is for people who are in ditches career-wise or not where they want to be, I've been stupid lucky and it is interesting to bring up something like the book that just illustrates that sometimes out of the most 
discouraging, disappointing circumstances. Things can happen. You can meet people like I owe Dan everything. And lots of other people too. Kevin Wright, I with it, and many other people, Bob Beatty. But that thing may be right around the corner, I guess. So anyway, I didn't want to sidetrack, but you mentioning the book and now that it's almost 30 years old, it seemed the right thing to, you know, just mention. No, that that's fantastic. And that's a really good message for guys. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get it, maybe mention the book again a little bit later, but the book itself, how cutting edge it was and how far ahead of its time that it was. And I know anytime you're talking to somebody who wrote something, it's, it's, it's difficult to talk about that, but seriously, really ahead of its time, not just in kind of the way coaching books were written at the time, but it literally in the content where there's, there's things in there, you know, Maybe and, and maybe this is a discussion about the lack of evolution of defensive football at times, <laughs> but the things that you guys have as bunch checks in there to attack are still the most common bunch checks today. You know, it hasn't really changed that much. And of course, you may maybe you weren't seeing that at the high school level at that time. And uh, you guys are studying NFL tape and you were seeing that and it trickles down. But it's, it's really uh, I was looking at it today. And I kind of revisit it yearly. And I was looking at it today, you know, just kind of prepping for this interview. And it's really, really was cutting edge stuff for the time and really still is today. So kudos to you on that. But we'll jump right in. Let's talk ball. So you and I have kind of we had a, a minor discussion relative to this a while back, a long time ago. But I'm really interested in splits at the high school level and the impact yeah. of high school hashes and just how yeah. different. You and I both study NFL film. We both study college film. And I think, especially as a young coach, for me, you just don't take into account how important high school hashes can be to either improve a concept or, or ha that can hurt a concept. So yeah. let's talk about that for a moment. I guess we'll start if My question for you would be, have there been concepts that you've seen over the course of your career maybe you really wanted to work and you felt like they didn't because of the high school hashes, or maybe there were concepts that really the, the high school hashes kind of helped it flower and develop and they became really great. You think because of maybe the space you had to the field or, you know, maybe it was a shorter throw to the boundary. I'll just kind of let you go on that topic. Yeah, it's really interesting because I spent so many years in Louisville and we would play our rival uh, Louisville St. Xavier at Cardinal Stadium every every year, and they never bothered to put high school hashes down. So I was always excited. And then some years the playoffs would be there too. There were a couple of years we played three or four games there. So I would get a cheat a little in those games, and I really and I, I loved it. But you're not wrong. You're 100% right. I think if I could use one route as a case study, I think slant arrow is the perfect is the perfect case study for something that's a great concept. You know, the Packers have made a living on it. Lots of people have made a living on it. It's in every NFL playbook. Drag, you know, arrow, slant, dragon, whatever you want to call it. And it's just problematic on the high school hashes for a bunch of reasons. And basically, for the field, if you run it to the field with the splits you need, the angles just get really wonky. You know, that's real advanced vocabulary, wonky. To the boundary, what happens is that, that point or B-gap linebacker can – can become a real factor. You're you're not isolating the, the flat defender in any meaningful sense because he just has so little space that he has to defend. So that's 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 just one that's a major issue, I think, at, at the high school level that we really that I like that I think is a good weapon because I think slants in general um are the best way to create 
you know, the, the paradox you have with explosive plays, we all want explosive plays because we've all read Brian Billet. The issue with explosive plays is how do you protect yourself long enough to generate the explosive plays? Well, the slant is one of the best ways you can do that because the ball is out on rhythm, but you're hitting a guy that has a chance to knife through the defense. But that that club's kind of been taken out of the high school bag, assuming that you're on a on a hash. You know, the other one that, that I'm, you know, I heard Bobby Peters talk about the soda concept of the Dolphins, and you know, we're all going to play with that. We're all going to see if we can if we can manage that, but but that's really a boundary concept. And I have no idea at this point in my life if it works uh, for the high school game. Now, what I do think, I, I would say in, res- in response to sort of the flip side of the coin, you know, with, with Coach Beatty at Trinity, which was the bones of our offense there that he brought in 2001, everything was built off the John Jenkins run and shoot read routes on the run type approach, but it was a semi-sprint action. So if you went back and looked at all of our years at Trinity, we were we were semi-sprinting, quick rolling more than we were straight dropping. And for a lot of years, we got a lot of mileage on the backside of those routes and so on. But I think the only way we got away with a lot of it was because of the high school hashes. Uh, we don't do as much of it now at X, but I think that's something that Bob probably instinctively or explicitly understood that gave us a real advantage and gave us a chance. We had a lot of quarterbacks during those years that were five eight, five nine, five ten, and, and so we could we could really squeeze some juice out of that. Um, now, the last thing I would say about this, it, and it's it is very interesting that you bring it up because I'm determined to be more of a slant team this year for reasons that I mentioned, and so I I actually I had somebody that I worked with do a study on how many times the ball is not actually on the hash. So what I mean by that is early in my career, my call sheet and my whole practice structure was left, middle, right. And I've gotten to the point and part of it's laziness, honestly, where it's just hash mark calls almost all the time. And so I've, I've kind of neglected that in between area. But if you look at slant arrow, you don't need the ball to be smack in the middle of the field. You just need about six feet. It just needs to be a it, it needs to be basically where the college hashes would be. So I had somebody do a four-year breakdown of our film to see what percentage of the time is the ball at least, you know, not necessarily smack in the middle, although that would be included. But what percentage of the time is the ball at least six feet off of the hash to where you could do some of this? And it came in around 31% of the time. Um, now, a lot of those you would still consider on the left hash per se, but my point is the litmus test is slant arrow. So what I'm saying to you is that going into this year, I'm going to organize my thinking where I have within my base calls and within whatever else I have off, off the hash calls, which includes middle of the field, so that I can exploit some of those things, if that makes sense. You know, slant option, the, the so-called looky route on the backside of stick is another one that can really get squeezed. You know, a lot of a lot of Dan Gonzalez's Ram read stuff is awesome stuff, but you know, especially if if they're in, in two linebacker spacing, you can get squeezed to that boundary side really fast. So, I want to do a better work, job organizationally of having things that I couldn't do on the hash mark, but I'm still getting called because I'm recognizing this 30% of the calls that I'm actually more or less on a college hash, if that makes sense. Definitely. That's that's so good. I'm more and more convinced. I've talked to 
several guys this offseason just kind of on this, that topic. And we, we in practice, I'm the exact same way. It's, it's hashes uh, pretty much every call. But I'm more and more convinced that you've got to take – have defined calls – on your call sheet for middle of the field. It's almost like a special, you know, it's a situation. Yeah, so like for me, if we play in, in, in Metro Atlanta, there are generally everybody has a kicker. I'm sure it gets that way in big school, Kentucky and, and definitely in Cincinnati as well. I mean, they, your school, they're great at soccer. They've got a kicker, you know, whatever stereotype, but they're going to kick the ball in the end zone. And so that is, you know, you may have, hopefully not that many, but four or five times that you are going to have the ball in the middle of the field. Well, does that impact my normal opening thoughts when I know I can have this thing in the middle from what I could would normally call on an opener? So I think that thought process is something that I've never really gotten into, except in the last few years, just kind of realizing there are some really good things from the middle of the field that maybe we miss out on just by not preparing enough to be able to call them when they're there. So great, great point. Really good. So it's interesting because we may just be doing the rules wrong. The officials in Ohio are letting us tell when we have a touchback, they're letting us dictate the hash. I don't know why they started doing that. But where, it, where we get embarrassed is on our tempo calls. One of the things we've done to be able, we're not a full-time tempo team, but we do a significant amount of it. But we shorten our calls by just the formation being automatically to the field. And about once every three games, we'll look really dumb because the ball gets spotted in the middle of the field and the kids don't know what to do. That happened to us on national TV last year, which was a barrel of monkeys. So, I really am growing through that process, which in some ways is me just kind of going back to being more diligent about some things. I've always been interested in the use of technology to make our jobs more effective. So I'm excited to continue sharing modern football technology with you here on the podcast. This innovative system leverages tendencies to improve self-scouting, game planning, and in-game decision-making at the speed of the game. Modern football stands out because it's a battle-tested platform used by teams at all levels, like four-time national champion Bishop Gorman, the five-time California state champion Folsom Bulldogs, six-time Texas state champion Lake Travis, Cal football, and the CFL's Grey Cup champions, the Montreal Alouettes. So book a demo today to see why these teams trust modern football technology. Visit www teammofo.com slash demo and mention Coach and Coordinator Podcast or use the coupon code CC10 to receive 10% off your first year. So I think probably, and again, this will be, you know, humility will keep you from agreeing with me, but you probably did as much, and I really believe you probably did as much to popularize spacing as a concept as the high school level as anybody through a variety of clinics that you did and, and videos. And it was something I think that, that grew to the point where a lot of high schools were really getting into doing the, the versions of spacing where it was kind of filtering away a little bit from the NFL and college level. And you have, I know you've been really successful with it. We had a couple of years ago running a four strong spacing, probably some of the most ridiculous statistics of any pass I've ever had in my career it didn't even make sense. We were like 26 of 28 or something. So it's been really successful. I know you've been successful recently with Hank, but you also have guys, even some big name guys who are are pretty, they're, they're pretty vocal about their disdain for spacing or hate. Yeah. And their spot drop type concepts, they'll say, and they're not as good against match, but there's still people having success with it. 
and I get it. I, I, I do. I get some of the things, the points those guys bring up. So could you kind of talk us through your thoughts on that and its evolution and why it's still been good for you or maybe it's changed, just kind of those types of concepts? No, I, th I think it's a similar conversation. It's two different conversations. So the first thing I'll say is I think spacing is a good, it's a good way to tell a little bit about my story in terms of talking to younger coaches because the way it became a big deal for me is I met Scott Leffler, who's now the head coach of Bowling Green. 2001, he was at Michigan. He was recruiting our quarterback, and we just hit it off. You know, I asked him to talk about some stuff. And anyway, and, and so I just started going. I was at a time in my life where I didn't have as many family responsibilities. I couldn't do it now, but I would go every spring, and I'd just camp out in Ann Arbor and Toledo for like a week solid. And I would just be a fly on the wall. And, and when the time came back, I asked questions. Scott was way ahead. Scott, <laughs> Scott had old DHS tapes of a quarterback coach for the Eagles uh, sitting in his office at midnight explaining stick spacing to him. The quarterback coach was named Sean Payton. So that's kind of where the journey started. But here, here's the important part about spacing. And, and about the second or third year of visit, Scott, here's what he said that Sean Payton told him. He said, spacing is a second read to everything. So at that moment, what it became to me was not really the route concept itself, but a philosophy about the passing game. So what does that mean? Well, it means that whether I use a sit over the ball and a spot out and swing or not, it means that from that moment on, we have leaned very, very heavily into routes that have a second layer of rhythm on the back side. And at first it always was stationary routes because yes, in the spot drop world, it makes sense to have stationary routes to where the quarterback is. He has to scan, whether it's, it starts with an individual route, like the true San Francisco 49ers, 1986, Jerry Rice slant with spacing, or if you're working, a two-man flat fade combination and spacing is the way you're going to save it as a second rhythm. It makes sense at an introductory level to have guys who are stationary who can look at the quarterback. Right. But philosophically, it just introduced me to the idea that I never want to cut off half of the field before the ball snap. I just don't. That's not to say that people that have beaters on one side of the other are mere. It's not to say that you know they're inferior people or inferior schemes, but. For me, my conviction is if my quarterback knows there's always a second act to the play, then I'm not going to be dumb on the front side and I'm going to be much more selective. So anyway, spacing became a mindset as much as it did a route concept. And I will say that when I moved from Kentucky to Ohio and you see a lot more match type coverage underneath and you see people doing a better job, not perfect, we have gone to more runaway routes is our second rhythm. We've gotten into some of the Kyle Shanahan stucco return stuff. We've gotten into some jerk routes. But the point is there's still a second rhythm and that all came out of the original spacing conversation. So yes, the route concept does have some limitations if you're not spot dropping. And I, I understand JT O'Sullivan's consternation. Like I get it. But you know, He's up. He's operating a lot out of his NFL experience. I know he coached high school ball in California, but I, I do still think if you're talking matchups, you still have to make linebackers prove they can do those things. But I also do think we're working more and more into having different kinds of moving play training in the quarterback division. 
we're kind of playing around a little bit with the drive concept and different ways you can bring shallow crosses into his vision. Because again, it's the philosophy of bringing somebody into your quarterback's vision so that the initial attack side doesn't have to be perfect. So that's the space of doing. As far as Hank goes, here is something I do think is really interesting about high school ball. I think at, at college, you attack coverages with the basic understanding that if a team is playing, you know, Rip Liz or they're playing Tampa 2, that their kids are basically going to play it correctly. Right. And, and, you're, and that you're going to be able to identify actually what it is a high percentage of the time. In high school ball, it, it just isn't so. And even at the high levels of, you know, we're playing teams in five states this year. Um, even at the high levels of Midwestern football, there's still a lot of, there's still a lot of variance. And if they're saying we're playing cover three or we're playing cover two, there's still a lot of variance in a linebacker who may take two and a half steps before he gets out of his run lead, before he does what he's supposed to do. There's a lot of ways that hash marks distort things. And so I think there are things that we can get a, we have to have a little bit different mindset of attacking. Like, yes, we will attack based on coverage, but we also have to attack a lot based on individual traits and how their kids actually play those coverage concepts. Because number one, you can't always recognize them perfectly off film, and I'm not willing to spend that much time. But Number two, high school kids are just much less proficient at the match and carry techniques if they're even trying to do that or the spot drop or even recognizing the pass itself. So for that reason, Hank, and, and, and we continue to be a Hank team in spite of me. And what I mean by that is there are things that I find much more enjoyable to my intellectual curiosity, but our kids just have developed a confidence level in it that no matter even the coverages that should stop it clinically and on paper, our tight ends just tend to be better at boxing out over the ball than the linebacker. And our hook routes tend to be better at getting into those windows that shouldn't be there if it's cover two, you know, if it's palms or something. You know, there are a lot of coverages that should be dead against, but because high school kids are not as proficient and we do spend a lot of time teaching kids how to fight into those windows and frame the quarterback and do that stuff, that it just becomes a high-confidence play for our kid, even if, you know, it should be dead against cover two. It should be dead against, you know, flat-foot quarters, which we don't see that much of. But we continue to do it just because the, the individual idiosyncrasies and traits within the coverage, you're attacking guys that just aren't as good at, at, at covering folks in, in high school ball. So... So, yeah, clinically speaking, we should, you know, if I had a conversation, if I called, you know, my old quarterback, Brian Brom, who's the OC at Louisville now, and and I said, you know, how because they run some Hank, but they're only going to run it against this, this, and this. Right. Um, and they're never going to run it against this and this. I don't, I don't have those restrictions, but at the same time, I've got to set. There are things that Brian or another quarterback, Stein, they can take for granted because they know if a team is in, Ripper Liz match, this is how it's going to play out. We don't always know that. And so there's some things that we can't automatically pry open. It's one of the reasons that throwing in the middle of the field is a little harder in high school because the linebackers aren't always masked and carried out of there like they probably should be. But that's the beauty of a route like Hank. You know, Hank sort of punishes him for that. So that's 
that's a long form of saying why we're still in the Hank game. You know, the, the best example I can give you just anecdotally is, you know, we pulled our, our junior quarterback in the middle of the game where he, he wasn't playing great. Our whole team wasn't playing great. And we threw our sophomore in last year. Well, our sophomore was, I mean, and this isn't at Elder High School, which has 10,000 very angry people. Um, <laughs> so there's a big moment for this sophomore. The first pass I called was Hank. And he, he got off to sit over the ball. He read the squeeze and he threw the hook. Not because I'm an awesome coach, but just because over time, it's kind of built institutional confidence and credibility of all the different levels. Yeah, that's great. I think there's uh, there's a lot of lessons in there. There's lessons about coaching peer pressure. There's lesson, lessons about doing what your kids can do and are confident in and not being told by somebody else that you can. I mean, this, and obviously the different things work for different people, but uh, it's been successful yeah. for us still as well. And so great, great points. That's where we'll pause for today's episode and outstanding part one of this two-part episode with Andrew Coverdale. Be sure to check out all we're doing at coachingcoordinator.com. Go there for our enhanced show notes and links to resources. Sign up for our weekly tip sheet. Get the best ideas from the previous week and trending episodes. And follow us on Twitter at Coach K Grabowski.